Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're on Team Human, conscious intervention in the machine. We may be living in a digital environment, but we are the products of biology, consciousness, and soul. We reclaim that sacred truth not by looking within or even to a wellness app, but to one another. It's time to intervene on our own behalf. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, virtual reality pioneer Eric Gellickson. I think on a case-by-case basis, one has to judge whether any particular thing or experience or even thought is a good thing or a bad thing, and mapping that into some organic equals good, artificial equals bad dichotomy is too simple. Eric will be helping us evaluate when and how technological interventions can serve our humanity instead of simply serving it up to our digital overlords. It's time to do what we will. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Well, looks like we're closing in on another year. Thanks, everyone, for your support. You can still become a supporter even this year by going to teamhuman.fm slash support or patreon.com slash teamhuman. One of our ways of thanking you is coming up this weekend in New York City, Sunday, December 15th at 2 p.m. You can come join us to see Reverend Billy and the Stop Shopping Choir at Joe's Pub at the Public Theater. Subscribers come for free. Just email team at teamhuman.fm for your tickets. Team Human is going to be canonized at this event. I think that means the choir is going to come all around and sing a special song to us and elevate us to sainthood. 
So it's sure to be some crazy fun. And if you're not a Team Human subscriber, you can still come. Just go to RevBilly.com for information. And yes, you can sit with us and get canonized. But you may as well just subscribe to Team Human and join supporters like Narween Otto, Cedar Reeves, Colin Berman, Jeho Shin, Crystal Rutland, Leon Rossiter, Luisa Lete, and Bob Wallace. Thank you all for being on Team Human. Also in the free things column, Team Human, the book, is being serialized in its entirety on Medium at medium.com slash team dash human, where you can also read written versions of my weekly monologues, my column in Gen Magazine, and listen to archived shows. And if you're the kind of person who gets holiday presents for your friends and family, please consider giving them a copy of Team Human, the book. A lot of people are finding it's a great way to bridge the gap between family members who've been convinced by our media that we're on opposite sides of the struggle. We're not. We're on Team Human. I got an interesting invitation from the Guardian of London. They asked, they said, would Douglas be interested in writing a 1200 word commentary piece on the last decade in tech, providing a critical view of how tech and our thinking about it has changed or failed to change since 2010? And I've been thinking about that question. And honestly, I think that we are a good 10 or maybe 20 years behind in our critical thinking about the net. I mean, the big hoopla right now, I guess, is Shoshana Zuboff's Surveillance Capitalism, which is a great book and all, but it's really about that moment in 2001, right? That's almost 20 years ago when Google decided to take all that extra data that we were all leaving behind and to figure out a way of monetizing it. Or maybe state-of-the-art is Tristan Harris in the Center for Humane Technology. Again, doing great work, finally publicizing the sorts of decisions made by web designers back in the mid-90s to promote stickiness and maximize eyeball hours that we spend on websites by any means necessary. So is that really what's happening over these last 10 years? I'm not sure. I mean, if we look back to 2010, that's about when I published Programmer Be Programmed, arguing that we have to understand the platforms on which we're living our lives or we're more likely to be used by technology than its users. And in some ways, over that decade, 2010 to 2020, people have taken up that torch, maybe a bit too literally, in that we got all that learn-to-code stuff and learn-to-code movement and schools initiating STEM classes and kids learning code in order to prepare themselves for jobs in the digital economy. So we had some understanding that a new kind of literacy would be required, but I think we're still too stuck on the idea that Digital is something happening on or in our devices. Back in 2010, when I was arguing programmer be programmed at the beginning of this last decade, I meant that we needed to learn code as a liberal art, not so much as software engineers, which is still cool, but I meant more as human beings living in a new sort of environment. You know, what's happened to us in the 2010s isn't just that we've been surveilled, but that everything we saw and did online was customized to who we are or who the algorithms think we are. The net that you see and the one I see are different nets, 
different news, different entertainment. Your Google search results are different than mine. Your news feeds are different than mine. The news stories you read, your picture of the world is different than mine. Not just because you see it differently, but because you're getting a different one. Now, you could say that happens anyway, or it's always happened. Like if you're an MSNBC viewer, you get different news than if you're a Fox News viewer. And for sure. Right. But at least that's you choosing the channel. You decide to watch Fox and Friends instead of Rachel Maddow. So you want to see an understanding of the world, one one that you believe in so that you can watch news reporting that, you know, whatever Democrats are conspiring, the Ukrainian spies to smuggle Mexicans into Texas to vote illegally and undermine Trump. But at least you've made that choice to see that story, you know, online, which means Everywhere from Pandora and Spotify to Facebook and Google to Alexa and Siri, it's a space that is configuring itself in real time to who the algorithms think you are. This is why we saw so much extremism emerge over the past decade. People are, in a sense, finding the others, but not the other people around them in the real world. No, it's the other people with whom they've been gathered by the algorithms or tilted into by these networks, by the environment. See, it's not just people who see the world the same way as you. It's people who are being shown the same world as you. There's no way to possibly find common ground with the true others. Gone are the days when we can share our impressions of what's going on because we're no longer seeing the same things. In these 2010s, we don't simply have different perspectives anymore. We are living in increasingly different worlds. Once we fully accept this notion... We'll come to an understanding of how we're being pulled apart and how to get back on the same team. You're on Team Human. I'm delighted to introduce to you our guest today, someone I haven't spoken to in 25 years, one of the inventors of virtual reality, Eric Gellickson. I first encountered you, I think, live at the Mondo 2000 house after lots of excitement. Are You Serious was there and Sarah Drew was there and Jess Morgan and a bunch of characters saying, oh, Eric Ellickson's coming tonight. He's coming tonight. He's bringing his gear. He's going to be here. And I was like, oh, I saw virtual reality. I saw, you know, Jaron Lanier showed me this stuff. And they're like, oh, no, you don't understand. This is something else. At some point that I remember I had a choice of going to a to interview Todd Rundgren or to stay and meet you. And they were all saying, I know Todd Rundgren, he's cool, he's cool, but you gotta stay. You gotta meet Eric. You gotta meet Eric. And then you came as this very unassuming, sweet guy with super long blonde hair and a billiard ball or what looked like a billiard ball to me, and a beautiful, super simple, apparently affordable rig. I don't know what you would call it, a sensate rig, which was like the first moment I actually got excited about the possibilities of virtual reality as something that human beings could use to connect to one another. And 
I'm wondering if you could tell me, where did that thing come from? You made that in your garage or were there like other people and a whole company? And what was I seeing? Well, very kind words. What we set out to do when we started Sense8, and I think achieved, was being able through various different kinds of programming techniques to implement VR stuff on commodity PCs, you know, which, as you probably recall, back then we're running at 25 megahertz, maybe two orders of magnitude slower than today's machines. So what I brought over to the Mondo house was the first hardware prototype for a stereoscopic head track VR thing that we put together. And as I recall, it was actually a couple of Amiga 500 machines with right. the kind of souped up 68020 cards onto which 68881 numeric uh, floating point graphics processors had been stuck. And, you know, all in all, it didn't exceed the budget of a startup that was bootstrapped and had no money. I mean, I think it was a couple of hundred bucks worth of stuff together with a kind of expensive Paul Hemus magnetic head tracker and a head-mounted display that I'd built out of a couple of Sony Watchman TVs. But, I mean, it was also a great experience to be able to go out and show people this technology because I mean, it was something they'd never seen before, and people who'd never considered the possibility of being in a world other than the quotidian one that their senses show them, it was definitely very revelatory for them. You know, they put on this head-mounted display, wow, they were in a different place. Their sensorium was in a different place. You know, I was always struck by the idea that, okay, when I'm done with my VR experience and I take my head-mounted display off, what does it really mean to be back in baseline reality? Maybe there's another one I have to remove. <laughs> and the uh, billiard ball-like thing, I think there were there were a couple of manufacturers. It was, uh, I think, called a space ball. It was this degree of freedom gizmo, which responded to torques and positions. We mapped that into uh, moving and rotating in 3D space. What I'm a little puzzled about is why the enthusiasm that the crowd of friends had for it. Maybe it's just because, you know, it was accessible. It was the first time they were actually able to put their heads in and look around in a virtual world. Yeah, partly, but it was the feeling that this wasn't going to be something we had to ask Intel permission for or had to have a grass valley or silicon graphics $4,000 workstation. This was going to be the people's tech, that this was like the cyberpunk version of a duct taped together rig that was going to give us not access to some big Mario world, but kind of access to one another. It felt like this was this was not virtual reality as big simulated world, but virtual reality more like Terrence McKenna described it as a shared space. In other words, something more like a chat room. And that as virtual reality developed, I got less interested in it than I was in super simple things like the palace, which was, you know, just a 2D web page where everybody had an icon and could type and see little balloons of text when they spoke, that those somehow felt more like shared spaces and what you were going for than, you know, some big immersive video game. Sure. I mean, you know, I, I do have to stick in the provisos or caveats that, of course, what was difficult then and still is difficult modeling these worlds. I mean, if you want to be in a shared 3D representation of an environment with others or solipsistically by yourself, you or someone still has to do a whole bunch of 
3D modeling to be able to create that space. The part that I didn't understand, I had those interactions with you and got to play with your VR and dream about us duct taping together our own fun little VR kits and this being a people's medium rather than some big corporate thing. And then, you know, over the next five, 10 years, I became friends with Timothy Leary down in LA. And then when Tim was dying and we decided to do this book together called Design for Dying, which I ended up kind of agenting for him to Phantom. And then he was really too weak to work on it himself. But he said, well, here's something that I was working on with Eric Gellickson back in the day that's dealing with a lot of the same issues. And he handed me what must have been 300 pages of text that you two were doing together. And I'm wondering, how did you end up working with Leary? And what did you see as, as sort of the, the common ground between you? What did you learn from him? And what did you take away? I had the pleasure and privilege of first meeting Timothy at the second Hackers Conference in 1986, which I'd attended on the advice of my friend Ted Nelson, you know, the Xanadu founder, the coiner of the word hypertext, who I'd got to know because I was working on hypertext at MCC, suggested that I go to this thing called a Hackers Conference and that I should go because I'd get to meet Timothy Leary. You know, in my youth, I'd always scoured the public libraries in the desolate winter months in Winnipeg, Manitoba, for all of Timothy's books and read them. Because, you know, to me, he was this incredible, lucid, shining, humanistic, worldly example of kind of like a superhuman. Anyway, so I, I got to meet Timothy at the second Hackers Conference. And when he needed a ride to the San Jose airport, I volunteered to give him a ride. And one of the last things he said to me is, you should move to California. So I did. And we started corresponding, started exchanging ideas. At that point, he was really just beginning to learn about computers and was, you know, super interested in the various social liberating possibilities they would offer. So to some extent, the collaboration was natural. And I remember we used to hook up our modems together and send each other little bits of text files by, you know, X modem transfer as we were collaborating on this kind of book a number of articles of which ended up getting published in various places. But the manuscript itself, which you ended up being given by him to rework into his last posthumous novel, was something that had only been published in fragments. But it kind of represented our, our thinking about the world, society, where it was going, philosophizing. It was a great experience working with him. In fact, one of the documents I still have is, I think, the first chapter of that on which he had written scathingly critical notes criticizing my style, my outlook. I mean, it's, it's something I treasure. It's really good. <laughs> I know. I look at my insults from Timothy Leary now with, with pride and I realize, oh, he's just being honest because he wants to get down to work. You guys, you were talking about everything from, you know, like the eight circuits of, of consciousness and feels like with your work together, it represented both Timothy and the counterculture's acceptance of technology as really the next landscape for human self-intervention. I've often commented on, on the idea that, that part of the reason the psychedelic community was in some ways hired to figure out cyberspace was because they had the most experience in hallucinatory realities and the kind of the least fear 
of imagining something and then beholding it. And that's why, you know, we will see, you know, you and John Perry Barlow and Howard Rheingold or Bruce Sterling and, and Timothy Leary and, and Terrence McKenna all at the same event talking about new technologies or new, new, uh, uh, new, new cyberspaces. Yet, if we follow Leary's advice, you know, the most important thing when embarking on a journey, on a psychedelic or vision quest journey of this magnitude is you're set in your setting. As optimistic as people were about psychedelics and their ability to reprogram society, by the early and mid-80s, I think people realized that, oh, well, it's not really, psychedelics alone is not going to heal this planet. And I think then people had a similar hope that technology would allow people to tune themselves and one another differently. And while you or I may have had the set and setting of human potential and connection and fun, uh, you know, Wall Street and Silicon Valley had a set and setting of extractive uh, extractive, you know, mercenary corporate capitalism. And so now 25 years later, it feels as if the world is living on a digital psychedelic substrate and having this collective bad trip. Well, I, re I remember a couple of things that Timothy said at that time. In On one hand, he had a lingering fear of the computer, I guess, as it was represented in 1950s society as impersonal authoritarian controller, you know, do not fold, spindle, or mutilate, fill in the correct box, some sort of authoritarian control device, which ironically enough, you know, the megacorps have once again turned it into. And on the other hand, I remember Timothy saying, every child in the ghetto will be able to edit a video however he likes and, you know, put the head of Donald Duck on top of the president and send it to his friends. And I thought that was like, you know, ludicrous hyperbole. Of course, of course, kids wouldn't have access to computers that are fast enough to edit video and so forth. But sure enough, through his usual prescient ways, however he managed to do it, he was right on the money, spot on. You know, that's what kids are doing with YouTube these days, using, using digital technology as this medium of creativity. I could scarcely believe it when he uttered that back in the late 80s. I know. And it seemed to me, and I, I remember when he was talking about that, even in the 90s, I wasn't believing it, even though a lot of us had Macintoshes. And I was thinking, well, if the kids in Africa could get a text-based email, that will itself be a miracle. And now you even see in, in sub-Saharan Africa, people walking around with you know cell phones that they're getting charged at uh, local solar stations. But I mean, at the same time, it's painfully obvious to people who are aware that these fears of computers or the software which they implement being the ultimate post-Orwellian, draconian, complete mechanism for panopticon control has been realized, you know, in a way that's far better than the East German Stasi ever can have imagined. When the NSA was building their Utah site and Brewster Kale of the Internet Archive did the back of an envelope calculation about the price required for sufficient number of commodity disk drives to store every audio conversation in the world. And it came out as something like $50 million a year, chump change to an intelligence community. It became obvious that automated control and direction of society is now enabled by people's participation in these systems. I mean, it's funny. It's probably hard for people who weren't around over those years to identify with what with what I'm feeling on kind of on a heart level as I speak to you. But on the net, especially in those early decades, there was kind of our crowd and their crowd, if you will. And our crowd was this hopeful kind of post-psychedelic cyberpunk human 
capability group like Brewster Kale, who we've had on this show, Internet Archive, trying to preserve data and literature and the Gutenberg Project and the Wayback Machine. And you're talking about Ted Nelson, who's the guy that was arguing from day one, if we had two-way linking rather than one-way linking, we would still own our own words and we would have a responsible internet that would have gone in a completely different direction. You know, Timothy Leary, who was looking at technology as an enhancement of human potential and thinking and connecting us to one another. You know, each of the each of the names that you're mentioning is part of a of a lineage or, or a heritage that I see myself as part of where we really were always pushing for technology to be about uh, you know, kind of human collective empowerment rather than surveillance and control. In some ways, you know, the work is very, uh, you know, collective and economic and based on models and how are we going to put this company together. But, you know, when I look at your current work, it seems once again, kind of focused on the individual neurology as sort of the locus for empowerment. And as you know, I'm talking about, uh, you know, pataphysics, which people can go look at at pataphysics.to, which is, as best as I can understand it, is using sound to help sort of recalibrate the human organism. After spending many, many years generating apparatus to allow people to have experiences via their conventional sensory organs, computer screens in front of the eyes, stereoscopic audio on the ears, it occurred to me that there undoubtedly are different, if not for some applications, superior ways of generating experience. And so I ended up spending quite a while looking at the historical literature. I'm referring in particular to the work around the late 1950s and around 1960 concerning direct electrical stimulation of the brain. Olds and Milner's experiments with rats in 1960, where an electrode inserted into the midbrain area, connected to a lever that the rats could press when they wanted to, apparently was generating an experience so interesting or compelling that they would cross an electrified grid to get to that lever to press it, where the grid was electrified to a voltage that they wouldn't cross to get to food when they were starving. And something that I only discovered well after his death, I was fortunate enough to know him, uh, Dr. John Lilly of ketamine and isolation tank fame and so forth, programming and metaprogramming in the human biocomputer. Back in the 50s, he was NSF funded and did probably what remains to date the most exhaustive studies of direct electrode implantation in monkeys. Uh, In monkeys, he had 500 different areas of the brain that he was applying his proprietary, non-injurious electrical form to, and discovered that the majority of the volume of monkey brain, the stimulation was pleasurable as measured by the fact that monkeys would continue to self-stimulate when given the opportunity to do so. And a few areas were aversive, i.e. they wanted to stop stimulation in those areas. Now, monkeys can't talk about it, but there were a variety of experiments done on kind of small sample sizes. There's Jose Delgado uh, in his book, physical control of the mind, and Robert Heath, who was at Tulane, again, we're talking around 1960, who managed to do some experiments on human people. These weren't volunteers, these were psychiatric patients, so their ability to communicate the experiences were highly compromised, but the results were extremely interesting. I mean, it seems as though direct electrical stimulation of the brain has all kinds of things going for it. I mean, there's also Wilder and Penfield when they were doing epilepsy surgery, uh, stimulating cortical regions with an electrode caused patients 
to vividly recount as if they were there various episodes from their past. Now, unfortunately, you know, drilling a hole in the head, sticking an electrode in, there's all kinds of risks of glial scarring, infection, and so forth. You know, that's kind of a non-starter. It's never going to become very popular. But a technology which has actually now been approved for FDA use for treatment-resistant depression is something that indicates that similar things, similar kinds of effects can be generated non-invasively. There's something called TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation. Really kind of simple. You basically have a powerful capacitor bank that fires off a brief magnetic pulse through a coil. And through Faraday's law, basically the rapidly changing magnetic field induces an electrical field. And that induced electrical field in the brain causes electrical stimulation, similar to what you could get with an embedded electrode. However, the problem with TMS is it's only good for cortical regions, you know, the very surface of the you can't stimulate in depth. But coming around to ultrasound, it's very recently been shown activation of a neuron, actually causing neurons to fire in a region which is fairly small and localized, like on the order of a wavelength of sound, the most transparent frequency for the human skull. Focused ultrasound can also generate neural activity. And so my current work involves, again, kind of in the spirit of a bricoler working with available commodity technologies and attempting to create an apparatus which is cheap and cheerful. I've, I've been building these phased array ultrasonic neuromodulators capable of achieving focus in arbitrary parts of the human cranium for the purpose of experimenting with what direct computer-mediated experience can be. And I mean, super early days of this, very few human studies of this yet. I mean, just indicating with very low power stuff that people are indeed able to perceive this effect. It seems to me that as a human-computer interaction modality, as you know, a way to learn, a way to experience in a way that's uh, higher bandwidth than going through our contemporary sensory, you know, our, our evolved sensory organs, that the potential for this technology to allow unbridled human experience is pretty big. These sounds, I mean, basically you're talking about a really advanced method of kind of putting headphones on your skull somewhere and playing sounds into your brain and then getting these huge effects, right? Well, the field is so new that the actual name for it hasn't even been uh, settled on. Some people call it UNMOD for ultrasonic neuromodulation. Some people call it TFUS for transcranial focused ultrasound. Uh, the sound is way above the audible region, partially because the skull is transparent at around 500 kilohertz and partially because, you know, obviously the higher frequency you get, the smaller the wavelength, hence the more focality you get. So it's not really playing sounds in some sort of like, you know, new age orchestral sound bed manner. It really is just generating a sufficiently high enough acoustic flux, enough, you know, watts per square centimeter. And again, the mechanism of, of neuromodulation is still kind of speculative. People think that what's happening is the cell wall is resonating at these frequencies. And as a consequence, the ion channels open because the membrane is, is being expanded and then the neuron fires. The reason it leads to some sort of health or happiness or benefit, is that because it's just intrinsically good or because we're maybe in the world that we're living in, we're being denied the kinds of frequencies that our brain needs to just maintain itself? I've been reading a really interesting book recently by a fellow called Donald Hoffman and called The Case Against Reality. 
I kind of got into that because I was reading Gallimore's Alien Information Technology. In both of these, one of the preambles to their thesis is the idea that humans experience really only an extremely small subset of all possible cortical states. I mean, think about it. You have 86 billion neurons approximately in your head, and each of these impinges on hundreds of others. But yet the experience we have is in many ways very similar to that of all other homo sapiens sapiens, regardless of their culture or background or age. Indeed, it seems to me that given the ability to arbitrarily activate different brain regions under computer control, safely using these ultrasonic neuromodulation technologies, that the range of human experience that will permit is far, far greater than what our evolutionarily fitness-mandated states of mind have come to be. I'm reminded of the, uh, of the Timothy Leary quote that's right on the, on the front of your website, which I guess we'll play. And I'll predict to you, my, my profession is visionary prophet. I'll, I'll prophesy what the next kick is going to be. It's going to be electronic brain stimulation. Within 15 years, we'll have little buttons. And if you want to get happy or if you want to uh, go back in time or if you want to learn faster, you'll press buttons because the brain is a, a, a neuroelectric network. Now, when that happens, the LSD orthodoxy will be saying this new thing is too much. Man shouldn't have that much power. But you can't stop it. Evolution continues to probe the dangerous, the mysterious, the new. People were scared of psychedelics for years. And maybe now, you know, that you've got the chairman of Google or whoever going to do ayahuasca at Burning Man, you know, it's more accepted. But as Leary predicted, even that crowd would hear about stuff like this, would hear about, you know, technological augmentation or change or manipulation of the mind and get really scared. I mean, and to kind of have a trigger reflex against it. No, doesn't it feel like some weird techno solutionist invasion? Of a, of a sacred organic process? I find it perhaps harder than you do to draw a dichotomy between the natural and the artificial. Okay, you can have ayahuasca, which is compounded from the two plants that somehow the shamans of the Amazonian Delta managed to discover have this synergistic effect and allow tryptamines to not be disabled by the monoamine oxidized inhibitors. Or you can have a chemist in Basel creating LSD no plant involved. I mean, to me, any sort of brain-mediated, neural-changing pharmaceutical thing, whether it's derived from an organic botanical source or synthesized in uh, you know, a test tube, to me, that's irrelevant. It's really kind of the personal, intellectual, experiential effects that that has. Its, its origin is less important. Now, I mean, that said, obviously, some kinds of things are dangerous. Some kinds of things are not dangerous. You know, and I don't think that that pair of uh, of two different sets necessarily maps onto the natural or the artificial. You know, Peruvian shaman use all kinds of naturally sourced drugs. Uh, you know, detura kinds of compounds strike me as one example, which seem far more dangerous than ultrasound being used at an order of magnitude lower flux than is FDA approved for ultrasound diagnostic imaging. I mean, I think on a case-by-case basis, one has to judge, however one judges, whether any particular thing or experience or even thought 
is a good thing or a bad thing, and mapping that into some organic equals good, artificial equals bad dichotomy is too simple. It's hard to even draw that line. I guess the bigger question is when we look at the world's problems and think, if I were in charge of the universe and I get to task Eric Ellickson with anything, do I task him on stimulation, on, on you know, uh, neurostimulation through sound? Or can't we just like uh, solve climate change or something? I mean, since you mentioned climate change, it seems to me that the most benign solution to that would be to naturally allow the human population to decrease as people become more interested in the direct and immediate acquisition of pleasure at the press of a button, rather than by various circuitous routes like having children and so forth, uh, thereby decreasing the population without genocide. I mean, I say that partially tongue-in-cheek. I mean, the problem with climate change, in my opinion, is essentially uh, the world is overpopulated. So you have some visionaries like Bezos, whose solution will be to build starships and go elsewhere. Maybe if I had a billion a year to pour into it, I'd be funding my own rocket company too. But back here on terra firma, a benign solution to climate change would be a gradual reduction of the Earth's population. Uh, If you read David Pierce, he's into the abolitionist project, abolishing human suffering. I mean, he also seems to think that wireheading has the potential of permitting alternatives to the acquisition of pleasure that are more environmentally benign. That could be indeed an ethical imperative. But I'm quite struck by the fact that all of the current brain-computer interface technology stuff going on in Silicon Valley that I read of, it always seems to be unidirectional. Everything I've read about has to do with computers reading brainwave activity. You know, obviously, Facebook would be interested in this. But in all of this stuff, I've never read about or heard about the idea of using computers to affect the brain. Seems to be like the missing half. Maybe that's happening and just not spoken of. That that's one of my suspicions. Well, I mean, it's a little bit in the in the sort of the wellness app community, you know, that this app will meditate you or these sounds, you know, will do hemispheric alignment of your brain. That's a very different kettle of fish than actually putting enough energy flux in to cause neurons to fire in a specific region that requires a variety of technologies including the ability to do phase correction through the skull. And stealing some techniques from acoustic microscopy, I figured out how to do that cheaply and cheerfully, a way of determining both the skull thickness and the speed of sound in that section of skull, non-invasively, no CT scan needed, for the sake of being able to change the phase of the sound at that spot to be able to cause all the waves to arrive at the spot you're targeting so they're in phase. And even if, I mean, even if the technology itself is pointed at the brain, even the way you describe it is always back on those original experiments where the person gets to push the button for their own brain. I mean, I'm not suggesting you, you know, apply it to your friends. The idea of exploring one's own brain with such powerful and versatile technology is what interests me in it. Right, which goes back to the original kinds of, uh, I would argue, positive exploration that people do in their consciousness through, you know, meditation and holotropic breathing and psychedelics research that we're seeing, where can I go? I mean, and that's sort of what you were asking with these technologies, which is why I was so much more interested in your VR than, you know, VR for jet engine repair or whatever they were doing. You know, it was VR for where can I take my brain? What can I fool myself into seeing? And what does that do to then the way I look at other people? And do you know what I mean? It's like this one big playful 
experiment. And I long for that, especially now in, a, in an era when I feel so responsible for the big issues of our time. It feels like an unplayful period in some ways. I mean, I'm stealing myself away from my responsibilities to work on a theater piece that I've wanted to do for so many years as if it's somehow self-indulgent to play in these spaces. We only obviously have one incarnation. Maybe we have many, but I, you know, my recommendation to you would be to as, as Alistair Crowley said, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law, by which he didn't mean do whatever you want. He means, you know, figure out what you want to do and do it. Do your own true will and no other may say nay. So if theater is what you want to do, that's what you should do, Douglas. Right. And you've never had a problem with that, though. You even, I mean, you almost have, have assumed a personal life of a kind of a recluse. I mean, in some ways, you're very off the grid, no? Well, I do that partially because I... I'm doing a lot of things and I can either build my apparatus or I can go out and party and talk about it. In fact, I mean, your podcast is the first time I'm speaking of it publicly for quite some time. I put up a website a while ago that just because I needed some gallium nitride parts that were unavailable and I had to convince the manufacturer that I had a legitimate company. I mean, <laughs> I put up the I website. for your gallium nitrate. <laughs> Oh, amazing, amazing technology. They didn't want to sell me any of these chips because they're too busy selling them to power cube manufacturers. They switch much faster than silicon, can deal with much higher powers. I'm using them for my ultrasound amplifiers. But you are, I mean, being respectful of your own time. Yeah, I'm right. That, that is very well put, being respectful of my own time. Right. You're not sitting and answering, you know, emails from virtual reality fans in the 1990s all day, which could take your entire day if you were accessible on that level. Yeah. Yeah. I try to insulate my life from influences that I don't want to have in there. Do you actively worry about the future and our, our species and planet and whether we're going to screw this thing up? Or it sounds to me from the, the little lilt in your voice that you're kind of optimistic that we're going to kind of get ourselves out of this mess, rediscover our true fine nature. Well, one thing that's occurred to me as a rejoinder frequently when people worry about a few degrees or a few inches of ocean level. You know, I point them to the nearest mountain ridge and remind them that that mountain ridge wasn't always there. Various types of geological tectonic activity pushed that up or pushed that down and will continue to do so over a geological time span. I wouldn't take this as some sort of uh, mechanism to avoid responsibility for one's actions at any time scale, but I think it's important that people realize you know, as Herman Hess pointed out in many of his writings, that the world has been around for a long time, will be around for a long time, with or without the human species or with or without six billion of the human species, and that a solution to uh, avoid any sort of undue psychological distress is to just kind of put a low-pass filter on your perceptions and think about things in a larger timescale. So, I mean, you know, that's not to minimize various personal or societal problems, but to view them from a perspective of longer temporal duration. I mean, I guess the place where I, where I get concerned is that, you know, while geological time will keep the rocks going, the, the conditions for biological life on the planet is a pretty narrow temperature range. And, you know, so when I read folks like Jim Lovelock, who was another one from that same period of time, who came up with the Gaia hypothesis when people were working on chaos math and quantum physics and all, you know, he's kind of concerned that we're going to lose the ability to regulate the temperature of the planet to sustain life. And then it'll be hard to get it going again. My friend Creon Levitt gave me a NASA publication called Sun, Weather and Climate, uh, where the graphs indicate various different Earth temperatures over the past few million years as a consequence of variations in solar output. 
I mean, indeed, in more recent history, the Maunder minimum of a few hundred years ago or the last ice age of a couple hundred thousand years or whatever that was, were predicated not by any sort of Anthropocene activity, but by variations in the sun's output. So people think, oh, yeah, the sun, it's our friend. Well, not really. I mean, a variation of one or two percent of solar activity and you end up with human climatological effects being dwarfed. Which is all the more reason to keep the planet as sort of as green and thermically self-regulating as possible. One of the first people I met when I came to California so long ago was Keith Henson. And he handed me a paper he'd just written about uh, solar scale type engineering. His plan was to disassemble the sun and use it more efficiently. Maybe that's tongue in cheek, but as humans acquire a greater technological uh, set of abilities, I think they also acquire a greater sense of technological responsibilities to be able to keep this little part where life seems to have originated, at least locally, and maybe the only place where life, at least as we know it in the reasonable timescales exist in the universe to keep it going. Now, whether that turns you into an extropian where you want to seed the other stars or whether that turns you into someone who's, you know, actually serious about building some sort of rocket-based capability to divert Earth-crushing asteroids, you know, any of these things seem like reasonable alternatives to begin to explore as we become, you know, a more sentient and capable species. And I'm wondering if you have any advice for us as we, as Team Human and the listeners are attempting to navigate this reality, this this often nightmarish world, it can't just be do what feels good because a lot of what feels good is actually pulling us down into these kind of dopamine traps. I guess, what's your advice for helping us navigate a more successful and kind of a pro-human path through this maze right now? Well, it's a challenging question, but I think the key to the answer lies in the word navigate. I mean, it was Timothy who was fond of remembering that cybernetic comes from Kubernetes, uh, literally in Greek, the steersman, and that the key to having good experiences, whether it be in a virtual reality or an evolved ordinary physical reality, is that you are navigating it. As John Walker said, every morning you have to wake up and decide what you're going to do with that day, that you indeed are in charge of what you want to think about, what you want to do, and how you want to feel about it. And so it's a really a measure, a question of personal responsibility to realize that you have that sense of control, that you can take that direction, that you can choose what you want to do, whether it's engaging with the technology, learning mathematics or a foreign language, ingesting a drug, going surfing. Each and every moment, you have that choice. So being aware that you have that choice is the first step towards taking those choices and doing what you want to do. I like the idea that even if we don't necessarily have a choice over what we're going to do that day, because we have to go to work right now, or we have to do these tasks, we certainly do have a choice about how we're going to feel about it and how we're going to think about it. And just making that change can then give you a whole lot more wiggle room to, to change the circumstances themselves. Indeed, as EJ Gold said, first, create a model of the universe as you'd like it to be, and then live within that model. And 
curiously enough, that at least in my experience, has caused the external circumstances to align with the internal simulated ones. Thanks. And virtual reality is a way of programming this one, which may be the final the final purpose of the whole experiment. Fabulous. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And IU, thanks so much for uh, for being on Team Human and for everything you've done over the years. It's great to connect after uh, meeting you 26 years ago or something like that. And I look forward to more of them. Thanks for joining Team Human. Our guest today was Eric Gellickson. You can find out more about his work at pataphysics.to. You can find that link and more about all of our guests at teamhuman.fm, where you can also join the team as a supporter. Team Human is produced right here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism by Joshua Chapdelin and edited in an adjacent quantum reality by Luke Robert Mason. Our community manager is Michael Bass and our exorcist is Stephen Bartolome. You can read my monologues as well as the entire Team Human manifesto on Medium at medium.com slash team human, or go there to subscribe to Rushkoff and you'll be alerted of anything and everything that posts. I've also got an email list you can subscribe to at rushkoff.com. You've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.